Welcome to the Real Python Podcast. This is episode 51. What goes into the decision of how to host your Python code or application in the cloud? Which technology stack is the right size for your project? This week on the show, we have Calvin Hendricks Parker. Calvin talks about cloud hosting options, infrastructure choices, and deployment tools. Calvin is the co-founder and CTO of Six Feet Up and co-organizer of the Python Web Conference. We talk about finding the right tools for his clients, and he discusses the platform they created for hosting a virtual conference. We also discuss how to host your own personal portfolio projects, and that conversation leads to a question of what types of skills you can showcase through creating a hosted project. This episode is sponsored by Scout APM. Scout APM is leading-edge application performance monitoring designed to help developers quickly find and fix performance issues. All right, let's get started. The Real Python Podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week, we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Hey, Calvin, welcome to the show. Hey, it's really great to be here. I wanted to have you come on to talk about deploying Python applications. We've had that as a topic on and off at RealPython through a variety of articles, but you sound like you're kind of coming from it from a little bit of a different angle in the sense that it's from the business standpoint that your company six feet up helps in a lot of those situations where people want to put up Python applications or Python deployments in the cloud. And so I wanted to kind of give people an idea of like what, what you guys do there at six feet up for that, but then also hopefully dive into some suggestions and best practices and technology stacks and stuff like that. Oh, that sounds perfect. I mean, we really, is there's a, obviously a wide range of ways to get your code into the cloud or you get your code running. And, and it kind of depends on like what stage your either your project's in or your company's in or where you're at and kind of the technical expertise you may even have in-house. I mean, it could be anything from, you know, we're doing a Heroku, I've got a Git repository and I want to push that code into the cloud because I don't want to deal with servers. I don't want to deal with running processes. I don't want to deal with any of that. I really just want to use platform as a service for getting something deployed. Yeah. I would say most of our customers are probably not there. Even they're not even using things like Elastic Beanstalk, which is kind of Amazon's version of the platform as a service. Uh, we kind of have a range of people who are putting services into the cloud, kind of the older, more legacy customers are doing it just with like EC2 VMs or going to Azure or, or GCP and, and actually just spinning up a VM and deploying their code or DigitalOcean, any, any number of clouds who offer some kind of a virtual machine option. But then you're still dealing with like, well, how do I get that server to, like, how can I reproduce that server? If, if something were to happen to it, say it you know, gets destroyed, can I rebuild that application and have it run the exact same way? Then you get into like configuration management tools. Are we using Salt, Ansible, you know, Puppet, Chef? You know, there's a whole bunch of moving <laughs> parts that like really come into play uh, when you kind of think about deploying what it was, uh, maybe just even just two, three years ago, what the standards were for deploying applications into the cloud, where those were like 
absolutely table stakes type tools. Like you really need to be able to use configuration management. And the nice thing is about some of them like salt is you have orchestration available to you as well. That one I haven't heard of before. Um, it's called salt of oh, the salt salt stack. Yeah. Well, salt stacks, this, you know, it's nice because it's, it's like Ansible and Puppet and Chef in that it can do configuration management. The thing that drew me to using salt stack was the remote execution model. Like I can query my infrastructure from a command line, just, you know, looking for w- machines with outdated packages. I can actually act on them, you know, do the updates like in line, right, right, right interactively if I wanted to. And that led me into doing true configuration management and actually putting together all the states to you know, be able to rebuild a machine at a moment's notice so it matches exactly like what I had there before. Or if I need to scale out, say I need to have a cluster of multiple machines, I can now build two machines that are identical, like super, super quick and easy. Okay. And that's being hosted on a specific platform? Are you hosting it on AWS or or can it go across other cloud providers? That's so a lot of the tools that I'll talk about and I use are typically cross-platform type tools. Okay. So SaltStack, you run typically, it has a, a master and a minion. And so you would run the minions on all your, your client machines. And that would be how your master would be the, the main point of orchestration. Uh, that's another feature of SaltStack a lot of those other tools don't have is orchestration. It's probably its main feature, like kind of the killer feature that keeps it still relevant. is the fact you can do orchestration type tasks from SaltStack. So react to events, like if, if traffic or CPU load or some event happens in that infrastructure, you can now have your salt master respond, you know, add another member to the cluster, you know, tune some tunable that would change the behavior of the site. So that, that really comes in handy when you need to be able to, to kind of automate your infrastructure. Okay. But that, that's, that's what I still would consider kind of the older way of doing things. And not that it's a bad way. I think it's still very, very, very relevant for folks who, you know, are used to running their own, running their own infrastructure, aren't quite ready to make that leap into a fully cloud native world. I guess that brings up a whole bunch of little questions. Oh, I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I guess the first is this older style, if you will, um, that you're kind of referring to is really looking at getting actual virtual machines, Mm -hmm. um, which then requires you know, a lot of sort of initial sort of configurations. I know that you can kind of configure them in advance and and sort of have a, a model that you want to deploy again. So hopefully the configuration can be, you know, saved as a, as a model that you can, you know, template or whatever and bring back. Right. But I think in some ways that that also as a style of having uh, virtual machines is maybe slightly more expensive depending on what you're, you're needing as far as resources. Of course, I'm, I, a lot of this stuff is always kind of moving and shaping, so I don't know if that has changed at all. Yeah, I, I would say that is true. Like kind of the lift and shift model. If you were used to running applications in your local data center or in your own server closet in your office building, you would probably think, well, you may just say, I want to move to the cloud. Well, you'll just move that image or that machine to a virtual machine somewhere in a cloud, in a public cloud someplace. Okay. But you're going to be doing yourself a disservice, and you probably will end up unhappy and paying a bill that's probably too large. Yeah. Uh, I think that the true benefit of the, these public clouds, I mean, in addition to giving you resilience and ability to put your your workloads into multiple regions and have multiple availability zones and kind of that whole resiliency and, and scaling of the cloud, is that you now have new options for building blocks and pieces that you can now delegate to Amazon or to Google or to whatever cloud provider you're in and they manage those pieces of the infrastructure. So you're kind of pushing down the complexity of your application deployment to the hosting provider. 
and they, they deal with, you know, how do I host a Postgres database? How do I host a Redis instance in a cluster? How do I do load balancing? How do I do CDN? That Those are all now just components you pick off the shelf and use to deploy your application in a more cloud-native way. And I think containerization has gone a long way yeah. to making that a much more realistic situation where I don't even want to deal with running the server that hosts my application. I just want to package my application up into a native, like standards-based image, push it into a container repository someplace, and then I use some orchestration on my side or on the hosting provider side to deploy my application as tasks into their you know container runtime environment. So like on Amazon, for example, we use Fargate uh, to do that because it's kind of, it's between the complexity of Kubernetes and the kind of simpleness of the EC2 instance. It's kind of that they take some of that complexity of running and orchestrating a Kubernetes cluster out of the way for you and kind of give you this, like, I don't know, I kind of going to use air quotes here for saying like serverless way of deploying a, a container because I'm not dealing with a server. I'm just saying my characteristics of my application needs so much memory, maybe so much CPU, but other than that, I really don't care. Scale it as needed. You know, it'll watch for you and see if, if you hit certain thresholds and spin up additional containers that are just identical to the ones that are already running. So you have to kind of switch your mindset as you deploy your applications because you're no longer saving any data into that container or to that virtual machine like you used to. Like you used to be your your application ran on a server, you had disk there, you just saved your data and you logged there, your database maybe was probably running there. You probably had one server where all this was just sitting. But now you're going to have to have your application run in a way that kind of follows, like, I don't know if you've heard of the 12-factor app, if you look that up online, it's a it's a really good methodology or kind of protocol for writing an application in a way that fits this cloud native deployment model uh, really well. Like things like always log to standard out so that we can actually have our containers just log in a way that are going to be recognized by or picked up by whatever platform you're using, and they drop it in their logging service. So it just heads over and you go over to CloudWatch to view the logs for your application instead of like trying to SSH into the server and you know going to find this log someplace and using less to like page through them. In this case, you use the term containerization. Primarily those containers are Docker or are there other standards? So Docker and the other, there's multiple runtimes out there. And so Docker is just one of many runtimes. So locally, I use Docker and Docker Compose to develop on my application, which allows me to spin up a database instance, a Redis instance, you know, a front end, like an Nginx instance, and my app. And plus, it allows me to run other tasks alongside it that kind of simulates more closely what I would be deploying into if I was going to the Fargate uh, environment. Okay. But when I actually deploy into Amazon or Kubernetes or someplace else, I'm not actually technically using Docker there. They all have, you know, maybe their own runtimes that are under the covers, but everyone speaks a standard, like the, the this open container standard that we that knows that I've packaged my application in a certain way. It's using these layers. You just grab the container from the repository and you should be able to run it because the 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 configuration of that container tells you what the entry point is into my application so that your task knows what to run uh, when it's spun up. And so for orchestrating that into Fargate, for example, we use Terraform to do all of our infrastructure and our orchestration of our Fargate tasks. So it feels like this becomes this, number one, trying to keep on top of all of it and the changes. As a Python developer, you have kind of mentioned briefly that you feel like some ways this is becoming a little easier because some of this is becoming not only standardized, but uh, a lot of the 
DevOps kind of maintenance, sort of paying attention to what's happening to the server, paying attention to the, mm-hmm. you know, the different machines and, and so forth is being handled on the back end. But at the same time, there's this tech stack that you need to at least get up to speed on. Is there, are there good resources you can point somebody to, to like, oh, I, I want to at least kind of dip my toes in and get familiar with some of these DevOps things as a, as a sort of intermediate developer and wanting to, to dabble and, and work in this world? Uh, that's, a good, that's a really good question because the, I mean, I, I've really been going off like the Docker docs for kind of getting started. Like I was, I'm actually pretty new to the container scene. And I've been a long time holdout on that, but I finally feel like it's gotten to a point where the developer experience is really important to me. And having an, a new, being able to onboard a new developer, a junior developer, intermediate developer, even an advanced developer, it used to be that you had to have a lot of like, I don't know, tribal knowledge about the project <laughs> to, to get them going on your machine. Cause you had to like, oh, make sure you got these five dependencies. And then you go to run it and it fails. And like the developer sitting next to you is like, oh, oh, sorry, I forgot to mention you need these five other things still. And make sure you have this kernel tunable like plugged in just right. Cause otherwise, you know, something won't run. So that, that I'm trying to, I think that the containers has eliminated a lot of that where I can pull my repository to my machine. I can run Docker compose up. And it, since most things in the, my repositories that we set up like this are set. So a developer can work on it like right away. It's not meant for production. Like, well, the images created are exactly the same as production, but the Docker compose files develop is like all targeted to production. The Docker files targeted to production or sorry, not production development. Right. So that a developer can pull run and start being productive like right away they're not dealing with how do i install the redis machine how do I, not how do, how do i install the postgres and i've also been focused on we've always been this way like we don't share a development database somewhere you know in our infrastructure every developer has their own copy of the data we try and put together good fixtures so that you can do run test cases locally so that everything can kind of run disconnected on your own developer's laptop and i feel like the docker experience has finally it's getting much more stable to a point where I don't have to do a lot of, you don't don't have to learn a lot of deep Docker knowledge. Now, eventually you probably will. You'll pick up things along the way because you'll have to debug something. I mean, common things like you forget to prune your Docker local repository of images and all of a sudden your disk space is all gone. You're like, where did it all go? Well, it's just because you, you you, there's some other like, kind of pruning and care and feeding you have to, you'll learn to do as a, a developer now using Docker. But you're not doing a bunch of other things that required, I think in my mind, like more like high level or deep deeper knowledge of databases or Redis and like getting these infrastructure pieces going. I just care about writing some code. I want to be productive. <laughs> I, I don't want to like think about like how to be in a DBA or I don't want to think about being like a varnish expert and having to tune web caches. And that's just not some, some people absolutely don't want to deal with that at all. I, I kind of am maybe a little different because I do like all those infrastructure pieces, but I recognize there's a lot of people who don't. And so I try to cater to that experience for our developers and for any developers you know, we, we encounter as we work through projects together with, with other teams. Right. You do a lot of handoff, I would guess. Oh, yeah, where for you, sure. You're helping them with this component of getting things up and hosted and then sort of handing the keys over for the their developers to drive it, depending on you know, the type of project. Oh, Yeah. Definitely a big goal of ours is to leave people in a, in a way better state than when they came to us. You know, they, came, they, they may have only come to us for like a small piece of like functionality, but by the time they're done, hopefully they've got like, you know, maybe they got CI, CD running so they can do tests in, in an integrated environment and they can do, maybe we've reorganized the repository. So it's, 
it's a little more friendly for developers to use. The onboarding experience is hopefully a lot simpler. You know, test cases actually run, so that it encourages test you know developers to actually run them. Right. I was thinking about that, kind of going back to the the different sort of flavors of containers, if you will, for the the idea of having a, a development Docker image sort of set up. In that, it's going to have, like you said, it would point to probably this other version of the database. It's going to have additional things, you know, packages potentially installed that allow for testing mm-hmm. and and so forth. And so you're just sort of creating this slightly different structure before it goes into the the production version. Um, is most of that done through like the the scripts, like a like a YAML type of script and things like that? I mean, for our local developers, the extra debug tools, because you, you obviously you don't want to d- deploy those into production, but Docker allows for passing in some flags. So typically we pass in some kind of a devel true flag to our um, image locally when you're developing it on your own machine. And so then that, that'll install maybe some command line tools into the image, like, you know, maybe a little more you know, creature comforts for if you do want to ro- open up a shell into your containers. But when we go to deploy into production, like we don't even typically deploy any kind of shells into these containers. They're really just one trick ponies meant to run either your Django application or, you know, the WebSocket server or whatever, whatever the, the piece of software is. And it kind of has a couple of advantages. Obviously, there's there's less data to ship as part of that package. And, you know, we try to make our images as slim as possible. And then there's less security attack surface area. Yeah. The, the less junk you kind of package up and ship into your container, the better off you are because it's just less less surface area to try and defend. Yeah. Um, that always seems to be a huge aspect of it. I, I had a couple of people on to talk about data science and the idea of taking advantage of having that strength of the cloud and and having all those tools there, which is nice. But at the same time, now you need to understand that you know you're not on your local machine <laughs> right <laughs> and now you need to think about some additional security constraints and so they were using a tool called sneak i think it's pronounced uh, oh, s-n-y-k yeah or sneak okay <laughs> i've heard multiple ways of saying it but yeah it definitely is uh you know kind of a, a bit of a best practices kind of thing to kind mm-hmm. of like har- harden what you're doing is it right. similar to stuff that you use yeah, so a lot of the container repositories will do checks, like at least some cursory checks against your images. Okay. And so uh, between tools like that and like if you're using GitHub, there's Dependabot. If you install the Dependabot into your repository, it can go through and look at your dependencies and flag any that need updating based on security notifications. And same thing for if you're using like Amazon ECR or like GitHub, not GitHub, Docker Hub will have basically security audits of the container of the images that you upload into the container repository. And it'll give you kind of a severity rating, you know, some red, red, yellow, green uh, warnings for things that you better fix now and things that probably can slide by. Okay. Uh, But this definitely still care and feeding, like even though you're not maintaining servers anymore, you're still having to make sure that your images have, you know, latest versions of the libraries in them because those could all turn into attack vectors for your application. Scout APM is leading-edge application performance monitoring designed to help developers quickly find and fix performance issues at only $39 a month. Scout APM pinpoints and resolves performance abnormalities like N plus one queries, memory bloat, and more. So you can spend less time debugging and more time building a great product. With a developer-centric UI, 
and tracing logic that ties bottlenecks to source code. Get the insights you need in less than four minutes without dealing with the headache or overhead of enterprise platform feature bloat. And with Scout APM's real-time alerting and weekly digest emails, you can rest easy knowing Scout's on watch to help you resolve performance issues before your customers ever see them. Start your free 14-day trial today. And as an added bonus for RealPython listeners, Scout APM will donate $5 to the open source project of your choice when you deploy. Check it out at scoutapm.com slash realpython. I was thinking about there's going to be these different considerations depending on the scale of the application or you know whatever you're deploying. And I, I think of I think you even started with this when we just started talking, the idea of somebody, say an intermediate developer working on their Python skills and they want to share like a portfolio project and they're looking for a job. You know, this is really jumping way back in scale in some ways. And would you have a suggestion for a type of platform that that makes more sense to to host on? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely more suited to like a Heroku where you're only maybe it's you're on a free tier where you're not having to pay for it because typically it's not running because you're not getting a lot of traffic. Right. But when you do get traffic, you want it to be solid. And you also kind of want to know that Heroku is kind of watching your back for you. So you get a lot of benefit from a platform like that. And then obviously at some point as your projects scale up or maybe go to production with your your portfolio app, maybe it turns into a business, maybe you got a new startup and congratulations, but you, <laughs> right. you, you got new considerations uh, sitting in front of you when it comes to how you deploy the app and, and security and scaling. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a big difference. That's, that's your, I guess one of the concerns I have when you see folks taking like boot uh, coding boot camps and they come out with a, a nice portfolio app and it looks good, but boy, there's so much more to learn. And I don't think they even know what they don't know uh, at that point about what, you know, kind of production deployment looks like. So I always try to like, you know, give them insights and hopefully give them hints and tips and tricks to at least let them talk about what they would do if they're going to deploy it, you know, in real life. Yeah. That's what I'm thinking about is, um, you know, I've, I've used Python anywhere and I've used Heroku Mm -hmm. and we had a recent article that got people kind of introduced to Google cloud platform again, kind of trying to stay under that free tier <laughs> of right. kind yeah, of experimenting. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, you know, for like uh, the sort of demonstration portfolio project, what have you, all of those c- could work. They all kind of are slightly different in how that you could kind of manage them. I had a really good experience with Heroku also myself because of just, you know, kind of the way that it can kind of look at a repository for you and, and keep things updated. And, mm-hmm. and like you said, it, <laughs> it can stay on a free tier pretty easily. Well, and, and you can leverage all those tools and you can demonstrate that during a job interview. Right. To say like, look, I'm, you know, I've deployed into Heroku. I'm using the container repositories. I'm watching for security issues. I'm keeping the app up to date. Like this is how my, like I approach a security stance in my application. Uh, that would, that would be a huge bonus. Like if someone came to me, you know, and we were interviewing them and they could talk. And showed it. And showed that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and you'd have your database separate, and this is why, and mm-hmm. um, things like that. So if somebody's moving onward, maybe not necessarily a startup, but like just a small business, and they want to have, uh, say, an integrate an API, something a little more elaborate, what what's kind of the next level from from those platforms? Well, there's probably two options, and the one I'd probably most seriously look at would be still containers, but maybe you want to use something like serverless. 
Lambda or the serverless frameworks uh, on other platforms. Uh, the new thing they just announced at uh, reInvent this year for Lambda was actually the ability to deploy your Lambdas as Docker images. Hmm. So now you've got one technology that you can deploy for little things, like for you know function as a service serverless type operations and for bigger things like I'm running a full-blown you know Django application and or or larger type things and you can use the same packaging technology for either one uh, so I think it it lowers your overhead like your cognitive load of things you have to learn to be able to deploy into either serverless environments or to like a container environment like Far- Fargate or Kubernetes or ECS uh, the container service uh, on Amazon okay I had played for a year with one of those free AWS, you know, kind of get introduced to the platform mm-hmm. things. And at the time I, I um, was primarily working with a tool called FileMaker this is before I got into Python. Oh yeah. Yeah. And so I had to create a windows server. That was the really only place that I could, <laughs> in, could, could get it going with an EC, you know, whatever type size I could work out in the free <laughs> platform, but I was able to at least play with it and kind of mess with it to a certain point. And so what I wonder about is I th- I think that the Lambda services and some of those things, if somebody wanted to hone their skills and learn some of these things, mm-hmm. they they would be able to experiment with some of that in sort of the free tier for AWS also? Oh, for sure. Okay. I mean, I think you get so many Lambda calls for free in their free tier. Uh, now, you kind of brought up an interesting like side point like about taking something like Access or FileMaker Pro and taking that into the cloud like to the next level. Yeah. And we we recently had recently in the last six months, um, Amazon also announced a service called Honeycomb. I don't know if you've seen that announcement or not, but basically it's like the Bento or FileMaker, you know, type GUI oh, okay. development of a database app. You know, I really felt like it was back kind of in the access days, but modern and in the cloud. Nice. So it may be something for folks to check into if that's really what their like target goal is. Yeah. I think if your goal is to write some quick automations and store some data and do some kind of operation on some data or track, you know, analytic types, you know, data and signals coming in, you know, things like API gateway and Lambda. I mean, you don't have to learn a whole bunch of other stuff right away. Like you can basically sketch out on a napkin, what you think your API calls are going to be, wire those into serverless functions. Uh, Once you get really serious about it, you can kind of move up into step functions and, and other like kind of higher level serverless operations inside of the clouds. Uh, anything to kind of keep you from having to go and manage servers uh, is also pretty nice. Because I guess the benefit you know, with those serverless operations is with the containers, you're still going to have to keep your container up to date. Like those containers are typically based off of some kind of base image, like a Debian or Ubuntu or you know something slim, Alpine. But those move too. Like you, you just can't deploy something and let it sit forever. Like it's going to get, it's, there's going to be a vulnerability. You're going to really kick yourself for not keeping that thing up to date unless you can, you know, invest some time and think about how to do uh, CI CD. So continuous integration and continuous deployment where you have it auto build when there's like you know, vulnerabilities detected in your image. I mean, showing that kind of workflow, which I don't think would be hard to do for a simple application would be an interesting like exercise for someone new to this space. Cause they'd really learn a lot about the infrastructure and DevOps and deployment. Yeah. So getting, even if it's a fairly simple application in mm-hmm. in functionality, what it does Python wise, they could be showing that this thing is hardened in a way that it it understands when it needs to update and when it needs to deploy new things and and right. kind of deal with those 
things. And I think in a lot of ways of them, a person, <laughs> or in this case, an organization, not having to have a specific person. I mean, you should always be like, there was like a, you know, a specific person's whose role was to, you know, make sure all those things were up to date and, and kept, you know, running and um, mm-hmm. system admin, <laughs> you know? Right. You were always worried when that person got too close to a bus. Yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody had said that to me before. I think it was uh, Mike Driscoll. He's like, yeah, there's a really high bus factor. And I was like, what is that? <laughs> yeah. I think, I think the more PC way now is uh, the lottery factor. If they won the lottery, you know, uh, and they went away. Okay. That's nice. It's a little less, That's nicer way a little of less morbid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now there's some, it's, that's really uh, exactly. Now there's some good examples. Like again, if you want to learn this stuff, AWS on GitHub has a, like a AWS labs repository up there that has a bunch of like kind of reference examples and some of them are pretty straightforward like deploying wordpress onto aws okay <laughs> you go look at it and you'll think it's a rube goldberg machine though um because you know they've, they're deploying every last little possible piece to kind of make this the, the total reference example so there's there's a lot of moving parts behind those things but it's a great learning experience to understand you can kind of dive in and, and understand each of them and they'll typically have a, a cloud formation button on the on the readme page where you click that button and it's going to deploy it into your AWS account with the, the whole thing running up and running and going. So CloudFormation is is their tool for helping with the deployment? It's their infrastructure tool. Uh, so inside inside of Amazon, they've got tools for, oh my gosh, the number of three that are right. acronyms that exist <laughs> in their their world is is mind-boggling. Right. But the cloud CloudFormation and like the the CDK, the, the Cloud Development Kit, they allow you to build infrastructure programmatically or declaratively with the the YAML files. In our case, we use Terraform for the same thing. I've never been a huge fan of CloudFormation, although I hear it's gotten better. I don't know. It's not my, it's not my thing. I, I kind of like being a little more cross-platform. So I feel like Terraform, if you want to invest in, in a tool that could be useful across different platforms, whether it's Google or even VMware on site, okay. yeah, Terraform handles those things cro- in a cross-platform way. And then, but for examples, the, like the ones that AWS gives you, it's nice to have that one-click button that just launches a, a cloud formation template into the cloud in your account, and you're just up and running, and you can kind of play around with it and kick the tires and understand, you know, why these pieces of infrastructure got built out inside this application and what their purposes are and what they do and how they react. So when you think of like a, a larger deployment, let's say, you know, a large uh Django platform mm-hmm. um, that's doing, I don't know, like for a large newspaper or something like that, let's just say as an example, mm-hmm. um, what type of infrastructure would you think would be a, a good idea for something like that? So we have pretty direct experience with that right now with a, a platform we built for virtual events. Okay. With the pandemic, six feet up, we put on like the Python web conference and a couple other conferences throughout the year. And we really didn't want to stop doing those conferences, but we didn't like the state of virtual applications. So we built an application that can scale to like thousands of simultaneous users all watching, you know, sessions and interacting and chat and all those kinds of pieces. And for that, we we did use Fargate for that. You know, we launched some number of containers. We, we used some load testing to understand better how our application would react when there are, you know, some, you know, varying levels or degrees of traffic or, or simultaneous users on the site. And so being able to spin up additional instances, you kind of have to balance out, like obviously when there's no load and when there's lots of load, you don't want to be paying for 
that steady state traffic all the time, you want to leverage that uh, elastic ability of the cloud so you can basically spin things down when there's low traffic and spin things up when there's, you know, when it, there's people there who want to get a, a nice experience. And so what would be like uh, on the high end, the level of traffic that say one of these conferences would have received? Uh, last year we did a couple of conferences where we had, you know, a couple thousand people uh, simultaneously. Okay. And that's video stream. That's video streaming. Yeah. Full CDN. Uh, it's, it's, it was a fun, fun application to build. Cause finally, you know, a lot of times we're doing projects as a consulting company, we're doing projects for other, other companies. And so they've maybe they've, they've already got something in place. And so we're just helping them build on top of what they already started. But with this project, it was like our own, we got to really own it. It was greenfield. We didn't have anything, anything standing in our way. We got to kind of like dream, what our like dream platform would be, where, where we, how we would deploy it and what technologies we would use and, you know, not go too crazy. Cause obviously we want to make this sure the thing actually launches and, and is successful. So we, you know, we picked some, some boring, nice technologies that we really wanted to go deeper on, like um, react and redux for the front end, deploying those just statically into S3. And that's, you know, some new things we've done for ourselves the Fargate deployments with Terraform, you know, it was also an area where we wanted to be able to automate, you know, using CI. So we actually have everything build. We build our images over in Bitbucket because we use Bitbucket for our, our code repositories. That kicks off like a, a actions over there that builds the images. But those images get pushed into Amazon's ECR, which is the container registry. And then when those cloud events happen, like every, everything you do in the cloud emits some kind of an event someplace. And so you can have things listening for those events. And so we had code build pipelines, listening for those things. So we actually got to play with all these new tools, all the kind of fun stuff that we don't normally get to play with on some projects because you know there's, there's not enough time to kind of invest in it and they need to get something done that's very specific. And now we get to do our thing. So it was a lot of fun playing with all those fun new tools. Yeah, it sounds like it. In, in that case, you're able to get like kind of like a bit of more of a playground kind of and try out what technologies are going to work. Whereas a, a client mm-hmm. will probably be a little more hesitant for you to be, well, I'd like to try out three different right. services and figure <laughs> out which one's going to work best for you. And you're going to pay me for the time to yeah. experiment. <laughs> and, but that's exactly what we did. Um, we, we really get gained a lot of, you know, valuable experience, you know, real world experience with real traffic against these services and got to see where, you know, where, where the edges, where the, you know, sharp edges were for some of these you know pieces which is again valuable for our customers now because when we go to recommend certain solutions we can say we have experience we have tried it we know what it's like and i think again for either entry level or mid-range people they should be doing some of those explorations on their own so they do have that experience and can talk about new technologies right because this stuff's only moving forward i mean the one recommendation <laughs> i would give to anybody yes. is that yeah you can't just sit and develop you know static html sites anymore that's just not a thing like the technologies will continue to move forward. And it's always, I don't know, I feel like I'm excited about it. I mean, I don't know, but I feel like the day I stop learning, you might as well, you know, put me in the casket and shut the door because it's, it's all done. Uh, I want to learn until the very end. Yeah, I'm in the same boat, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> I, uh, I mean, that's partly why I do the podcast and I joined Real Python was like, this is the best way I could possibly learn this stuff <laughs> and continue <laughs> to keep asking questions and, and so forth. You mentioned two technologies for sort of front end stuff. These are, I'm guessing both JavaScript react. Yeah. I'm, I'm somewhat familiar with, which is kind of out of Facebook, I believe. Mm-hmm. And then Redux, which I'm not familiar with as much. What's the difference there? Yeah. So for building 
rich web applications. I mean, we definitely moved well beyond the the realm of static websites with, you know, even server-side rendering is kind of old school technology at this point. Not that it's bad and people shouldn't do it, but if you really want to kind of push the edges of the user experience for their web applications, you really have to think about it like you're writing a rich application, like a desktop application. And the tools like React and Angular View give you really nice frameworks for building that into a browser so that you get that reactivity and like that that user experience and the UI that really feels like a rich web application. So that's that's what the React part brings to like our Loudswarm application, for example. It's like really it's you're loading one one binary, I kind of picture like you're just loading up one binary on your computer, which really is loading one web page that now can do many, many different tricks. And it does them in a way that it feels really fast and really responsive. And there's not, you're not load, waiting for like page loads to bring you the next set of data. You're, you're really moving between routes inside of an existing application that all kind of already lands on your computer and is sitting there waiting for you just to explore the apps. So React gives us that ability. In some ways, leveraging the power of that person's browser oh yeah for to sure. do a lot of that um mm-hmm. and you know obviously it's going to use more memory but phones and com- computers today that is a resource that the browsers typically have right yeah exactly yeah so we, we try and send as little over the wire then afterwards like once you've kind of gotten the main part of the application or it started loading all the rest of the subsequent calls to the app are going to be api calls so all of our Backend for the Loudswarm application, which is what we use to build the, the application that hosts our virtual events, is called Loudswarm. Yeah, that's all. There's there's not a server rendered page in the application. It's all the React app that's been deployed statically into an S3 bucket. So when you go to the app, you're actually just getting what appears to be static at first, but then all the magic kind of happens as the APIs kick in, and you, know, you start getting your various tokens, and then you start getting all the data that fills in all the the pieces of the UI with all the dynamic bits. And so that all comes from Django. Okay. Yeah, so it sounds like a, a, a pretty mixed platform as far as the languages that are kind of involved in it. Like, mm-hmm. I, I've seen that in repositories lately where you, you know have like a division line of saying like, this is percentage Python, <laughs> this is the percentage. Right. I was looking at the the one for the Mars um, Perseverance, um, <laughs> their code, They somebody had posted the repository to it. It was mostly C++, but a lot of the control stuff was uh, was Python and the oh, testing awesome. for it, which is I, cool. So. I did not check that out. That's really cool. Yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty exciting. I'll, I'll include yeah. a link for it I here. Mean, <laughs> it's, it's kind of a necessary evil to learn either JavaScript or some front end frameworks. I mean, I'm hundred yeah. percent a lover of Python, but just for delivery of what we do, web applications, to really get the full rich experience, you're going to have to use some kind of front end UI like React or Angular and some JavaScript, and it's not hard. I mean, it's, it's you, there's an um, uh, investment you have to make into those frameworks to learn how to best take advantage of them. But once you do, it it, it flows pretty nicely. I mean, that's the benefit of having a framework. Right. Kind of save you the oh yeah the effort of, of <laughs> writing it from <laughs> from scratch. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Like, like the people who write those frameworks, I mean, there's, there's a lot of work in there. And it's nice you get the benefit from that. I mean, there's a lot of people using those frameworks. So there's a lot of bugs being reported and fixed. Yeah, just like Django in some ways, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, Django is amazing that way, too. The batteries included capabilities of Django. I don't think a lot of people dive too deep into that, or they should dive deeper into it, because there's so much rich utilities and template tags and helpers that are all built into Django that just do so much for you. Like your code, the part of the code you actually have to write yourself becomes so small if you really learn how to leverage those frameworks correctly. 
This week, I want to shine a spotlight on another RealPython video course. As a listener, you probably have heard us talk about the GUI framework PyQt or PyQt several times. This course is titled Creating PyQt Layouts for GUI Applications. It's based on a RealPython article by Leodanus Pozo Ramos, who has been creating quite the learning path filled with articles about PyQt. And in this course, Christian Koch takes you through what the benefits are of using PyQt's layout managers, how to programmatically lay out widgets on a GUI using PyQt's layout managers, how to select the right layout manager for your GUI application, and how to lay out widgets in main window-based or dialogue-based applications. I think it's a worthy investment of your time to learn how to efficiently lay out your GUI applications. Not only will the techniques save you time, they'll also make your application easier to use. And like all our video courses, it's broken into easily consumable sections. And now all the courses have transcripts and closed captions. Check out the video course. You can find a link in the show notes, or you can find it using the enhanced search tool on realpython.com. Kind of going further, Six Feet Up is a consultancy, or I guess, yeah. how would you describe your, yourselves? <laughs> we are, uh, we're, we're an expert Python and cloud consulting company. Okay. Uh, we've been around for almost 22 years. Uh, we started up way back in the day. I mean, I think I started using Python in the year 2000, uh, which puts me in the old school, I guess, uh, <laughs> realm of, <Sure>. of Python <laughs> people. Right. But we solve like hard problems. We love the hard problems. Uh, we aren't typically doing easy things. Uh, we we have a very senior staff who who just loves. We just love solving hard problems, doing cool stuff. Um, we've done projects with NASA. If if you remember the the Pluto uh, New Horizon probe that went to Pluto, mm-hmm. and we work with one of the teams there and built some dashboards so that the the scientists could visualize the data and see all the activities that the spaceship had done. And, and get back, you know, ad hoc reports. And just, it's, it was amazing, you know, things that we were working with, like, little rocket scientists. Nice. Yeah. So I was thinking about is, and we kind of touched on it a little bit, but if you were hiring, mm-hmm. um, I've always talked to people kind of on, on the other side of it, like trying to help the beginner slash intermediate person, you know, prepare for an interview or prepare for a job. And I kind of wonder on the other side, as somebody who, who's hired people, uh, I know you, you've mentioned that you typically hire people that are at, uh, in more sort of senior positions, but mm-hmm. what are the kinds of things that, like, you know, I've heard the the startup kind of mentality of like, oh, we're going to break out a whiteboard and have you, you know, <laughs> do this algorithms. I, and, and I've never done that in an interview. Yeah, I wonder <laughs> that how realistic it is in, in some situations. and. In some ways, I, I think of it as a, as a, you know, I'm, I'm got a background in music and a background in the, these sort of creative fields where I think of a portfolio as, as what I would provide in those situations. Mm-hmm. And so I, I wonder like, what are the kinds of things that you would, I don't know, be excited by if, if a person brought it to you and you already mentioned if somebody could show you a project yeah. uh, and ha- all the ways that it's being, you know, integrated in the background that would really kind of light up some certain things for, for you, but are there other things you'd look for? Yeah. I think even before I wanted to look at their portfolio, I think as a preparation for wanting to go get a job as a, as a developer, I think it's a really key that you understand yourself. Like (laughs) what, what makes you tick? Like what gets you excited? What's what you're passionate about? Like what, I mean, some people talk about a unique ability, uh, so part of our hiring process is the first thing we even have people do, and I know there's some pushback on this, 
but we have people do some, a couple assessments, like like a behavioral assessment, a personality assessment. You know, everyone's heard of like the DISC um, before. We do a couple of those. So what's that stand for? Oh uh, boy. So there, each of those are like various factors uh, that, of how you behave. Okay. You know, like D is like, uh, what is that? I don't even remember. This is, you're, you're delving into an area where I know a bit of, uh, just enough to scratch the surface on it. Okay. But basically it's Maybe like, we can provide I'm some links for it when we get back yeah, to it. Yeah. So. Uh, so I'm like, a, I'm a high eye. So I'm outgoing. I'm an extrovert. I love talking to people. Yeah. And so if, if you know those things about yourself, you've already got an advantage, like a leg up. Like if you can take a couple of these kinds of things and just read up on them and understand what they measure, they all measure different things. Uh, they're not all the same. And, but it just helps you to kind of talk intelligibly about what you want, like understanding what you, you want from life and what you want out of a career and what you want to make you happy. Because uh, if, if you don't have that, you're going to be unhappy or, I mean, possibly happy. You may stumble into just the right thing, but you may not. Uh, so I think the first thing to do is really understand yourself. Okay. Yeah, I think about that in some ways, like uh, there's some other tests that are similar to that where you're getting an idea of like, you know, how introverted or extroverted the person is and also like how they communicate with other people, Yep, (laughs) Um, which is a big part of it. But I agree that part of it, like if you're getting into a role and you really just want to be a coder and never want to be a manager, (laughs) that's something (laughs) that you're going to need to know pretty early on. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, that's that's exactly it. I think that understanding of yourself really helped. I mean, it's, I think it's actually helped my marriage. Like understanding how I communicate has has gone a long way. Like my wife seeing that she knows how I communicate, and like she's like, oh, that it just kind of opened her eyes. But that same thing's true for a work relationship. I mean, they're all relationships. Absolutely, you know, it's not. I'm not married to my work, but well, technically I am. My wife's my co-founder, <laughs> so you know, when she listens to this, she'll get a good laugh, but, it's, but you, you still are investing a great amount of your life into a thing. You should at least understand how you're going to react to it, how you're going to behave and what, you know, what makes you happy and what, where you, you know, are going to get the most joy out of it. So that's the first thing is then if you can come in and talk about that, like, you know, how you behave or what you enjoy, what your mode of operation is, that gets you a long way to understanding, you know, how you'll, Maybe coding's not your thing. You'll find, maybe you'll even find that out. Maybe you really are meant for more of a support role or more of a, a management role or exactly what you're talking about. Maybe I do want to just code all day long and I don't want to talk to people, which is impossible. That's also a misnomer. I don't think it's possible <laughs> to get a job where you don't talk to people. Yeah. No, this communication's always there. <laughs> right. Or, you, or you'll learn to move the needle. Like you'll be like, oh, I need to improve and change, you know, part of how I behave which is also possible to say, oh, I, I recognize that I do have difficulty relating to people on certain topics or subjects or in certain ways, and I can fix that. Yeah. So that, that that's a big thing to start with. And the next thing would be exactly what I talked about before, which is like, can you demonstrate, can you show me projects and talk through the code and walk me through it and, and have a sense of pride? Like, it's really, it's like, it's the ultimate show and tell. I mean, I, I think it's, yeah, as a kid, in kindergarten, my, my favorite part of the class was probably show and tell. I, I loved, you know, showing off cool things I got, talking about a thing, diving into it, getting really passionate and understanding the intricacies and how it works. I mean, I always say those developers love to like take apart, you know, clocks and toys as a kid and never put them <laughs> back together, which I think is great. Like that's right. You, you learn by breaking things. And the more things you can break, the more buttons you can push, the more, you know, API calls you can try, uh, the more experience you'll have to talk about it. Right. I mean, that kind of gives you that, even if you are in a sort of, you know, beginner state or a junior state, 
your ability or, or willingness to break things and then talk mm-hmm. about it. I mean, that's probably most of the conversations people have as developers <laughs> is, is all <laughs> right. the problems that they're solving and all the weird things that have happened to them. And, and, you know, I, I, I think, you know, the stories of that are, are sometimes as interesting and that, I agree. Like I, I've definitely been a, a show and tell type person and I'm very hesitant to show what I've created, you know, like as a musician, I will not play, you know, songs <laughs> for people or photography or whatever, all these different kind of creative pursuits I've had. And my programming is the same way. Like I don't want to share something that's half baked. So like having the ability to, to understand quality, you know, to, to a certain level where like, okay, I feel like this is something, you know, I, I, like I, the last, the Python job that I, when I got into this world three, some odd years ago, I walked in and I showed them these FileMaker apps I had running on an iPad mm-hmm. and then I developed for a small business. And I said, and they're using these in the field, you know, this is what they want. They needed this problem solved. And so I learned this technology stack and I thought this was an easy way to kind of solve it. It didn't require any cloud and other kinds of things, but you know, for a lot of the people that was like the biggest aspect for them is like this person, you know, has completed tasks you know mm-hmm. beyond uh and because i think about certifications has always kind of been a thing in, in a lot of the corporate world and yeah i have opinions there as well I, certifications in my mind means you, you're good at taking a test right uh and you, you've memorized some material but have you applied it like do you you know real world now real world experience is really hard to like fabricate like i just yeah. don't think you can get that it's hard to get it in a classroom because the people who are really out there doing it are not in your classroom teaching it to you. I mean, it's just kind of, it's too hard to do. Like there's people who are like doing it and people are teaching it. And I definitely get passionate about teaching uh, programming to, to kids and to, to adults and, and all around. But even when I teach it to them, it's, I try to get them to get a level of understanding, but I don't think they're ever going to get the same level of understanding as if they had just gone out and tried it, you know, broke it, you know, busted it into pieces and then tried to put it back together again. Right. <laughs> such a common thing you know oh i know uh, but it's, it there's so many there's, there's so many people who are so resistant to breaking something like they feel like it'll just be broken for i don't know what they i don't know what they feel because i'm i'm don't have that fear like i've i've always just been like well let's just let's just go try it i mean you fabricate your do you teach stuff that way uh i, I try to i mean but you know okay. you can't I can't force people to do something. Uh, right. <laughs> so go ahead. Go ahead. Right. Push this button. <laughs> I'll, I'll be as unhappy as you are if I keep trying to force you to do it. <laughs> All right. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. But I, I, I think that's an interesting way. One of the earliest podcasts I had was with somebody talking about how errors are your friends. Oh, we um, are. Oh my gosh. They're totally <laughs> telling you what's going on. And There's nothing better than a great error message. So developers, as you're writing good error messages, make sure that they are informative and tell someone what's actually going on. Yeah. And not to be so afraid of, you know, mm-hmm. them <laughs> appearing. Right. <laughs> so I guess we could dive a little deeper into the Python web conference and, and kind of give a little background on that. Yeah. Uh, how many years have you guys been doing it? This will be the third year, uh, so it's always been virtual. We started in 2019 uh, with a virtual Python web conference. Our goal was to build an environment or a place where web developers, the web application builders uh, of the world could get together. Um, we felt like there wasn't a market that was being served well by the current conferences, you know, the PyCons and the regional conferences. Uh, they're, they're always focused on maybe more of the flashy stuff, the AI, ML, the big data, the data science stuff, you know, all the, the flashy, what 
what, what appears flashy to us, I guess, where sure. I feel like what we do, you know, Django and Flask and those kinds of things, maybe is a little more boring technologies, but there's interesting things going on there too. And we really wanted a place where everyone could still get together, exchange ideas, hear awesome sessions and learn. So we started that in 2019, uh, originally virtual. And then when 2020 came around and the whole pandemic, uh, we actually decided that was the time to build a platform to really host the Python web conference in a way that could foster better engagements. And last year was great. I mean, really exceeded our expectations for the number of people who attended and what the countries and the time zones and just the, the whole group was really amazing. So I'm really excited about this year. Uh, we've got 47 talks over five days. Uh, we're doing it March 22nd to the 26th, uh, but it's going to be half days. So you can actually still kind of do your day job and participate in the Python web conference uh, you know, in a more, I guess, metered fashion. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that it's during the week. Yeah, well, uh, it's difficult, but I think things have, the dynamics are different. Like when you used to go to like PyCon or to PyOhio or PyTNC, these are some of my favorite conferences, but a lot of times you're, you're you're traveling to them. Like I'm getting a hotel room, I'm staying away from the family. Like there's not expectations that you know they can see me and I'm expected to do things because I'm sitting in the house, you know, at a conference. Right. I'm gone. Uh, so I think with the running it during the week, it's a lot easier for folks to say to their employer, like, I would like to spend a few half days, you know, of this week, yeah, you know, learning and engaging with the the Python community around topics in in the web or AI and cloud. Actually, we've added in more tracks this year. Uh, we actually have a culture track this year that I'm super excited about. Uh, there is a official PyData track. So one whole track of the conference each day is dedicated to PyData topics. So there's some really cool, you know, AI and ML and data science topics. So even we do have some flashy stuff there. But our, our main focus has been Python and how it's used in the web with APIs or delivering web applications or, you know, all the various things that build what we that we use to build the web with. Yeah. And th- this platform, the LoudSwarm, is hosting all of it. Yeah. And it's all Django. It's a, you know, it's a Django and React application. And it's all deployed cloud natively. Um, I love talking about it because it's just kind of neat to say that we're hosting the web application, a web Python conference on Python. It really kind of has a nice ring to it to me. I'm really most proud, though, of, of the speakers. Like this year, we've got almost 20% women speakers. There are 43 new speakers this year. Uh, we got 17 returning. So there's a really diverse and just an excellent group of folks who've stepped up and said, hey, I want to be a part of this, and I can't thank them enough. Uh, if you go look at the speakers page on the Python Web Conf site, it just, it's just a really amazing crew of folks who are, who are on that page who are all going to be part of this. Yeah, I'm excited to go through that a little bit more because that's been a, a really great sort of ground for me to find guests. Um, oh, yeah, to I bet. Try to bring people in and <laughs> Those say... Those are the right people. They are amazing. <laughs> right, well, and they also, they, they already know, they already have a topic, a, that, like some, a subject that they're interested in and have developed this, you know, honed this, this mm-hmm. idea together. And then some kind of ways, you know, in the case of like PyCon last year, I, I could point them to the to the youtube recording of that i know in your case the sessions you do record them mm-hmm. um do you end up releasing them like later in the year to we do. like the yep. general public okay yeah so last year's uh, all of last year's talks are on youtube so if you just go to youtube and search for python web conference or uh indiepy is the community sponsor it's our local user group uh, so they're underneath our like indiepy uh, youtube channel there are all of them up there from last year the current way it'll work the talks will happen live 
they'll be available about 10 to 15 minutes after the talk is over. They're going to be available recorded in the platform. So even if you buy a ticket after the event's done, uh, you'll still have early access to those videos from the live event. Uh, when it happened, I think that'll be for 60 or 90 days. I don't remember off the top of my head. Uh, some, but that's what it was last year. I think we did like a, a 90 day yeah. kind of hold on them for folks who had attended the conference. There'll be a Slack organization set up for the event. And so people will be interacting you know, 24-7, which is something that surprised me about last year's event because we did have people from 17 time zones. We had 35 different countries represented wow. at the conference. <laughs> uh, so nice. it was a super, again, super diverse group of people. You'd wake up in the morning and people overnight, you know, from other countries and other time zones had all been having great conversations and watching the sessions. And it just felt like this, even though we're only running half days, there'll be full days of like social interaction and engagement going on uh, across the, the platform. Nice. Did we hit most of the things you wanted to touch on? Uh, well, last bit, I guess for, for ticket prices, we have a professional ticket of $199. There's a student ticket for $99. And we also have a grant program. So based on the number of paid registrations that come into the platform, we'll be giving grants for folks to attend who couldn't otherwise you know, afford a ticket. So right now, I think we've got 10 tickets available, uh, but as registrations grow, uh, we'll be offering up more. So if you head over to the site, you can apply for the grant. Uh, we really were excited about that last year. We got folks to to join who, like I said, couldn't necessarily, you know, it wasn't in their budget to to afford to pay. We want to help them attend if they can. That's great. Uh, what's kind of cool is one of the uh, one of the grant recipients from last year is giving a tutorial this year. Oh, that's nice. He's like, <laughs> he really he was, he was super excited about the event. He's like, I want to give back. He's like, can I can I give a tutorial? And we're like, absolutely, we'd love to have you. Oh, that's great. Yeah, so you can check it out. There's a Twitter, like Python WebConf on Twitter. There's a hashtag PWC 2021. A whole bunch of cool stuff. There's already, uh, you know, Six Feet Up, obviously, is an organizing sponsor. But we do have a Diamond sponsor. Uh, JetBrains has stepped up. They have been an awesome crew. They were the main sponsor last year as well. I really appreciate that. And then just this week, we got the Plone Foundation as a silver sponsor. So I'm also excited. That's a group I've been involved with for decades. Okay, cool. So I have a... A handful of weekly questions that I ask everybody. Okay. So first one is, what's something you're excited about in the world of Python? And it could be, you know, a package or another event or, you know, something else that's happening out there, code code editor. I, I used to be a diehard Vim user. Like, st- okay. still use Vim, but I, I'll tell you, I've been really excited by the, the leap. And this is not just a plug because I, I love the JetBrains folks, but PyCharm has really impressed me. They They really are investing in that platform. And it's like every time they get a new update, there's some cool new feature in there. And so the latest one is the uh, code with me. And that's like, it was beta a couple months ago. And then when we just tried it like two weeks ago, they have like embedded, like it must be like Jitsi Meet or something like that. They've got basically our, you know, real-time web, WebRTC video in the editor. So I can actually like see you like a web meeting, but we can code together. So I don't know, that was really cool that, that that's just like just popped up and just came out of the blue from my, my, from my editor. So it's kind of like a pair programming, like yeah, yeah, plugin it's, built in. <laughs> it's super nice because yeah, you can follow the other person while they're coding. You can code together. So given the fact that we're all working remote and can't be together, this is a real like welcome surprise to be able to see a person's face and code along with them together and solve those kinds of problems like in my editor without having to leave the editor and have Zoom open and have the editor open and have Slack open. It's all in one spot. <laughs> so that's kind of cool. I, I really that was surprised. That was neat. And what's something that you want to learn next? I want to learn that so there's really some cool like video processing stuff 
out there, like the AWS Elemental tools uh, for doing like video production and re-encoding video. But I, I don't know. I, I want to play with my, my my devices and my do like computer vision and do some ML stuff with with Python. So that's something I've not had a chance to like play with. But I've got some cool devices laying around here at the house. Like I've got the um, the AWS like Deep Lens, which is like their ML like chip in a little package with a camera. I really want to play with that and do some video. Huh. I haven't heard of that. Yeah, do some video processing. It, it came out like two years ago, three years ago at reInvent. I mean, I've just had it sitting here on the shelf and it just stares at me and says, you need to come and play with me. I want to do some cool stuff. Is it a like an Arduino or more like a, a actual little computer um, that it's attached to? Like more like a super souped up Raspberry Pi. Yeah, as I was thinking, with like like with an inference chip in it, so it's got a you know camera, and so you you can basically train a model, like send you know tag a bunch of pictures, train a model for detecting certain things. Like I actually, it was a really good talk from last year's reInvent, I think it was, where the guy had trained it so that at night it would let his cat in on the window <laughs> instead, go. and not but not let in like critters. Right. Uh, which was kind of cool. <laughs> so we had a deep lens doing that. So I don't know. It seems like there's some cool stuff. Like I, I really like cars, like, you know, sports cars and you know, machines like that. So I was thinking if I could have it detect if a cool car came by my house and take a picture of it and like show it to me on like the dashboard or something. That'd be really fun. There you go. <laughs> cool. So that's like a dream project I'd like to do. Yeah, that sounds fun. So the other one is what's something that you thought you knew about Python, but you ended up being wrong about it hmm. this one's kind of deeper i guess the the um luciano romalo wrote the fluent python book sure and i highly recommend that to anyone who really wants to dig into the internals of python and that opened my eyes to like how things function under the covers like i didn't know i don't even know if i had an idea of how python managed real memory under the covers and some small little tricks you could do to actually optimize that once you get to a point where your application is maybe bottlenecked in certain ways. So his book really opened up my eyes to optimizing dictionaries and objects and their storage and how they actually stored things and kind of the real what's going on behind the scenes. That was definitely eye-opening for me. Okay, cool. So I, I'd recommend his book. Even though it's a couple years old, it's still very relevant. Uh, he goes over async. Uh, he describes the new async features in Python really, really well as because the thing that I didn't quite have my head fully wrapped around you know, having come from the old school Python world, I wasn't dealing with a lot of async stuff yet, but we are now, and I, and I really like it. That, that's a book that's been updated also. I mean... It, Probably. I, I I think I read the first first version, though, because when it came out, I got it right away. Okay. And he's an old school Zope guy, too, you know, from Brazil. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's somebody else I want to try to get on the show. Oh, he's um, great. Talk to. Re, super fun person to, like, just have a, you know, conversation with about anything. Nice. Well, I really want to thank you for coming on the show again, Kelvin. That's been my pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Don't forget, you can start your free 14-day trial today. And as an added bonus for Real Python listeners, Scout APM will donate $5 to the open source project of your choice when you deploy. That's scoutapm.com slash realpython. I want to thank Calvin Hendricks Parker for being my guest this week. And I want to thank you for listening to the real python podcast make sure you subscribe to the podcast in your favorite player and if you like the show leave us a five-star rating and a review you can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast and while you're there you can leave us a question or a topic idea i've been your host christopher bailey and I look forward to talking to you soon <laughs>